Hello and welcome to True Love, No Shame, a podcast on recovering from Christian purity culture. I'm Danny Fankhauser, author of Shameless, How I Lost My Virginity and Kept My Faith. You can learn more about my book at shamelessthebook.com. I'm here today with Tina Shermer Sellers, author of Sex, God, and the Conservative Church, Erasing Shame from Sexual Intimacy. She's also founder of the online community, Thank God for Sex, and the Northwest Institute on Intimacy. And I came across Tina's 2006 article, actually just very recently, I wish I had found it earlier, Christians Caught Between the Sheets, How Abstinence-Only Ideology Hurts Us. And so Tina, I love this article so much. It captured so much and so succinctly and really reflected my own experience. Uh, of course, I went to a Christian college, and so I think I have a lot in common with many of your students. So I kind of wanted to start there in terms of, you know, you, you talk about how you noticed a change in your students around the year 2000, I think yeah. you said. And so I'm curious, you know, what that was and, and what's kind of the past of this? Because my experience was, you know, I grew up only knowing this, this abstinence only um, way of thinking. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been teaching in the graduate marriage and family therapy program at Seattle Pacific University since the early 1990s. And I've been teaching their graduate human sexuality course for the marriage and family therapy students, which is a required course for licensure. And in that course, the students write their sexual autobiography, which is, I'm sure, a very frightening thing for people to hear. Um, mm -hmm. But we have our students write aspects of their own story in many of their courses, because we believe that you're only ever as good a therapist as you know what your own story is. So when they get to the, the human sexuality course, we ask them to reflect on their sexual story. So I give them, I don't know, like 60, 70 questions around gender and sexuality and affection and so on to think about their sexual story. And so I've read, gosh, well over 500 of these in my career. And around the mm -hmm. year 2000, I started to notice a dramatic increase in sexual shame. And this kind of would show up in just increased levels of humiliation and self just sort of disgust around their bodies and what they had done or not done growing up, what they had felt and sometimes not felt growing up and real increases in ignorance around their bodies and sexuality. And this was really dramatic. And I wasn't really sure what I was seeing at first. And it took me a couple of years before I had asked enough questions. And I began to realize that I was seeing the first wave of kids, many of which who were um, coming through the purity movement that began in the early 1990s. So kids who had hit their adolescence about that time. But we also were really growing with regard to the impact of abstinence only education across the United States as well. So I had kids that, and I say kids because I, they were, you know, in their mid twenties, but who not mm -hmm. necessarily were from religious backgrounds, but the school that they were at were teaching basically purity culture education in their public schools. So some of my students um, were not from religious backgrounds, but in fact, were getting the same kind of education, if you will, 
at the public schools. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it was really a new thing really in the 90s to start teaching abstinence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we never have been a country that's had comprehensive sex education. That's never been the case. But we had much more sex education in the 70s and early 80s. And then it really dramatically began to change in the early 80s. And then that change just grew in impact. And so by the time we hit the early 90s, that impact had spread, was pretty widespread across the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I want to read a couple of lines from your article that I really loved. So you say, when people are filled with shame and self-loathing, their affected self-esteem takes precedence in interactions with others. It dominates and eclipses a person's ability to see and love another. In essence, sexuality encased in silence and shame keeps people from intimately knowing both God and each other and cripples our ability as a community of believers to truly love and be a healing force in a hurting world. And so I thought that was so interesting because in my own journey, it really came back to the way that I saw Christianity. And it was a faith that was really about caring for others and abstinence seemed so contrary to that. It was abstinence was really about protecting oneself. So I'm interested, what was your own sort of religious journey? And how did that sort of interplay with the your interest in, in sexuality? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So much of what prompted me to study this and ask the questions that I did really came from the impact that my students were having. My own experience was very, very different. And I guess that played a part in part because my experience was so different, not because it was so similar. I Mm -hmm. had the good fortune of growing up in a Swedish immigrant home. Uh And in my home and in my extended family, people were very comfortable in bodies and talking about sexuality and talking about bodies. And it was a pretty classic European family, um, Northern European family. Mm -hmm. So I remember learning all kinds of things about my body and and sexuality as I was growing up. You know, I often say I grew up in a sound bite sex family. So I learned in very small sound bites as I was growing up. And I learned from my mom and my dad and both my grandparents and all my aunts and uncles. And so I never got one sex talk. I just learned about it like you learn about brushing your teeth and what keeps you healthy and recipes. I don't know. You just learn about all kinds of things. Yeah. And I can just think of hundreds of conversations that I had. And so to me, this was just a good, wonderful part of your life, like many other parts of your life. And I knew that all of my relatives were sexual and my relatives were married and in good relationships. And to me, this was just a very normal, natural part of life. I didn't think of it as better or worse or hush hush or or anything. And I actually was well into my 30s before I really realized that every family wasn't like mine. And, and in part, it was reading my students' stories that I came to realize that most families, in fact, weren't like mine, and that I actually grew up in a very weird family. (laughs) But I think it was the contrast of seeing the family that I grew up in against the family that my students grew up in that really kind of broke my heart. And so being that I grew up in that family, 
and then became, um, then was a Christian during the time that we would call the Jesus movement in the seventies. Um, cause I'm in my mid fifties now. And that was a time that was post second wave feminism in the United States. It was a time when there was just a lot uh, that was positive with regard to women having voice. And there was a lot of sex research going on in the United States, like sexuality research for the disabled and just a lot of very progressive things. In fact, things that we're still not doing, we're not researching yet again. So it was a time even in the church where there was just a lot of positivity. It felt like, you know, the the church really for me seemed like a place where you just knew how much you were loved by God and how precious you were. And it didn't feel like somebody was looking over your shoulders. It felt like, yes, you weren't supposed to have sex until you got married. But what was most important was that you knew your belovedness. And if you made a mistake, God's grace was there. So it was just a very, I th- think there were so many people I knew around. I always tell people that you knew you had a good testimony if you had been saved from LSD, mm-hmm. you know? And so I always thought, well, I just didn't never had a good mm-hmm. testimony because I was too much of a goody two shoes, you uh-huh. know? Yeah. But that was the 70s, you know? That's kind of what it was like. And I would go to rock concerts at the big, you know, Christian church and, you know, they'd have these big, you know, big Jesus calls, you know, at at the end Mm -hmm. of the concert. And it was just a very different time. So my adolescence and my college years felt very positive with regard to faith and worship and then even how sexuality was talked about. And then again, I think part of that too was my family. So I felt very naive to how I perceived the church with regard to those issues. So, you know, flash forward X number of years. And, you know, by then I've gotten married and I've had children. And then I look at what my students are going through and I am completely baffled and heartbroken for them. Mm -hmm. And I just don't understand what's happened in the church. It's just, I don't understand. And I begin to ask questions like what's happened, what's happened in culture where have we gone? I don't understand, you know, and, and that's when I began doing all kinds of research to understand what's happened sociopolitically, what has happened in their experiences of youth group different than mine. And then I asked the question, did Christianity ever get it right around sexuality? Like what's really been happening over all of history? Mm-hmm. Because it was just very sad to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so tell me more about your book that just came out. Uh, do you do you address some of those yeah, questions? Yeah, I there? do. So I asked the question, you know, did Christianity ever, ever get it right with regard to developing a truly Christian sexual ethic, one that came out of the new covenant, one that came out of Jesus ministry, one that was about grace and love and mercy and sort of what was so unique about his ministry. And so for several years, I had grad assistants and we just combed history and tried to understand how we had developed the sexual ethic that we had that was about don't and no, and basically no real education about the body and seeing it as good and a gift and something that was intentionally given to us as a 
an incarnational gift with which to understand God's love through. And we followed that through history and really could never find a different message other than the body is something that will take you away from God. And so we followed that all the way through history. And what we found was that you can follow that story all the way back and you'll find that it really originates in part with the mind-body split that happened in about 300 BC with the philosophers. And, you know, they elevated the mind as being more important more valuable than the body. The body was seen as beautiful and valuable, but not as valuable as the mind. And that set in motion some values in culture. And of course, this was with the elite and with the men. And so that was in place for about 300 years before Jesus. And so there was patriarchy and then this idea of the mind-body split. And then that was very much a part of culture in the first two, three, four hundred years as Christianity was attempting to establish itself apart from Judaism. And in those early centuries, you know, you had several people who were trying to establish the church in different parts of the world. And of course, there was a lot of persecution and a lot of struggle in those years. In the fourth century, Constantine, who was the emperor, he became a Christian and he then had the power to appoint then who would be the leaders, who would be the bishops of this new church in Rome. So he had the power. So what was happening then is the people, the men that were vying for this places of power, these positions of power were doing so by denying the body. Mm-hmm. And those that were denying the body the most were seen as more spiritual than anyone else. And that was how they were competing with each other was through the denial of the body, the persecution of the body, because the body was seen as that which will take you away from God. So the mind-body split had become more dramatic than it was earlier. The mind was still, the mind and the spirit were something we could trust, something that could take us toward God. And the body was really seen as as something carnal, something that's going to take us away from God and something that we need to deny all its desires, all its wants. And so it developed into this very patriarchal, very male competition. And when men couldn't or were unsuccessful in denying their body well enough, then they blamed it on women and women were the temptresses. Mm -hmm. And this notion is still very much alive in culture. Now we can see how it happens when um, there is an assault on a, on a college campus. And the first thing that's asked is, well, was she drinking? What was she wearing? You know, Mm -hmm. this line of thinking is still very much alive, which is very unfortunate. So, This ethic of the body being bad, not to be trusted, um, had nothing to do with Jesus. It had nothing to do with Christianity, really, as far as Jesus' ministry goes. It had everything to do with a particular kind of competition that was happening among men 
um, as a way to establish themselves as being more spiritual than someone else. And it just happened that it happened that way. And that became our established sexual ethic. But it wasn't a Christian sexual ethic. It wasn't one based on the new covenant. So we never really developed a Christian sexual ethic. This is just the one that happened to develop and it has stayed with us for all of these years. And so when I realized that in doing this study, in doing this research, I wasn't content to stop there because I really believe God being God and God developing our, making our bodies the way they are, which are filled with five wonderful senses that give us the ability to take in the beauty of God's creation and love the way we can. And I don't know, I just think God's creation and our ability to love is a pretty magnificent thing. And being a therapist, I can, I see how much love and touch can be a healing force in our world. I thought, you know, Mm -hmm. God must have known that we weren't going to develop a Christian sexual ethic. We weren't going to get that right, but there must be something on the Judeo-Abrahamic monotheistic line that shows us that God was relentlessly trying to let us know that our bodies are good and our sexuality is good and that it is a gift. It must be there somewhere in scripture. So I just kept looking deeper and deeper in Hebrew scripture and in Hebrew mystic writing to find what was hidden there that we didn't know in the Christian church. And what I found were some incredibly beautiful stories that I just didn't know were there. And so the book has these just beautiful Hebrew stories that show that God wanted us to know that our sexuality is good and that he wants us to see how beloved we are through love and through touch. And anyway, there's, there's just some remarkable stories in there that, Mm -hmm. that I didn't know about and that I think everyone should know about. Yeah. That I'm sure a lot of people have just never heard. And it's interesting to hear how that stuck throughout the centuries, because I think even in our own lives, you know, we learn something when we're younger and it just, that shame kind of sticks yes. with us and it's hard to, Very um, hard. to get yeah. rid of that. One of the things that's in the book is actually an evidence-based model for healing that I've been using in my practice for years that people can use to help in that healing process because shame is kind of like tar. It sticks on you and with you and you have to really do some very concrete things to help you heal. And it's kind of like peeling an onion. You have to do them kind of over and over again, but it's very possible to heal from sexual shame. And it's very important to heal from sexual shame because sexual shame affects our ability to love in deep and intimate ways. I think most people don't really realize um, how much sexual shame can affect us. So I think it's something that's just really important for people to actually try to heal from if they are feeling like their body isn't good enough, or, you know, their ability to connect with somebody feels really hard for them. They have a hard time trusting people or communicating or 
knowing what they like or how they like to be touched or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do, you know, they have their various desires and it's sort of like, well, is this a good desire? Is this a bad desire? And, you know, abstinence at least was like a very black and white rule. So what are some ways people can think about what kinds of intimacy is good for them versus is there such thing as intimacy that's destructive? Is there such a thing as intimacy that's destructive? Yeah. Or desire or desires, I guess, that are destructive. Well, this might sound too simplistic, but the way I like to think about it is that the way that we are in relationship with our sexuality, with our desire, it needs to honor us. It needs to sort of first, it needs to honor us. It needs to honor God if we have a relationship with God and that's important to us. And then if we are in relationship with another, it needs to honor the other. And if it's not doing that, then it's not serving love. And that's really the purpose, it to serve love. Mm -hmm. That's where it becomes generative. That's where it grows. If it's self-serving, it's going to fall flat at the least and be hurtful at the most, right? Mm -hmm. So desire asks for us to be mindful. If we want it to nourish us and bless us, then it asks for us to just be mindful. One of the stories that's in the book that I love and adore is from like 500 BC. And um, the Jewish people had this wonderful relationship with sexual desire. They didn't see it as a bad, dangerous thing like Christians often do. They understood it as being that it was part of the core nature of all creative force, that they were one and the same. And it comes from this story that's very, very old, where the rabbis in this one village felt like people were not managing their sexual desire well. And they went into the temple and into the Holy of Holies, and they begged God to take sexual desire away from the people of the village because they just thought the people were not managing sexual desire well. And they begged God and God said no. And then they begged God some more and God said no. And they begged God like over and over and over God again. And God kept saying no. And then finally... I think God just got tired. <laughs> God said, fine. <laughs> and out of the Holy of Holies jumped this lion of fire, the spirit of a lion of fire. And it went over the whole village. And the next day, the, en the hens stopped laying eggs. The artists stopped creating. The businessmen stopped going to work. Mm -hmm. Everything stopped in the village. Everything. And the rabbis realized that at the heart of sexual desire was the heart of all creative desire, all creative desire. Mm -hmm. They were one and the same. And so they went back and they asked God, well, can you separate them? Can you give us the creative desire, but not the sexual desire? And God said, no, with all great gifts comes the need to manage them, that there's always a shadow side and you need to learn to manage it. So there was this deep understanding in Hebrew life that discipline was a part of things and that our desires need to serve like the good, need to serve, in this case, love, need to serve self, other, and God. 
And if it's going to be hurtful, then we need to exercise self-control. And that was just understood, but you didn't want it taken away because the very force of it is a good force. It's part of our creative nature. It's part of the oomph in our life. And I often think about that when I think, you know, when I work with people that are very, very depressed, they also don't have any libido. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do anything. They can't find pleasure anywhere. And it's because they're one and the same. You know, our sexuality comes from the same place that our playfulness and our creativity come from. And the Hebrew people knew this. Well, the Christians got that one wrong. (laughs) They made desire bad as opposed to making self-discipline something for us to understand when we need to exercise it and when we can set it free, when we can set desire free. Yeah, I love that story. That's beautiful. And so true how, you know, sort of repressing this one side of yourself actually affects all these other sides of yourself too. Yeah. So one other question I have for you is, so I love how you talk about your family and how they kind of talked about body parts and it was all very normal and, you know, and really like no shame around it. It was just, um, like you said, like a normal thing that was talked about for people who grew up kind of with parents who <laughs> wanted to avoid the conversation completely, just kind of cross their fingers and hope their, their kids just kind of like wait till marriage. How do they then open up that conversation with their parents. You know, I think not being able to talk about that topic with your parents kind of like actually creates a separation where, um, you know, that's, that's something really important part of your life that you want to be able to connect with them on. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my students, of course, are mortified when I tell them part of the assignment is that they have to go talk Mm -hmm. to their to the adults in their life, you know, unless it's going to cause some like huge family riff, I ask them to go interview people in their lives. And I say to them, you know, you're an adult now. And part of creating an adult to an adult relationship with your parents is to move into that by having adult conversations that acknowledge that you're an adult. And parents sometimes need help with that. And so asking them about their life, what was it like growing up in their home? How did they learn about sexuality? You know, was it silent for them? How do they feel like they did with you? You know, and then telling them what you think about how they did with you, you know, and beginning to have those conversations is just a really important thing. You know, it starts to level the playing field and most of us want to write a new sexual legacy. We don't want to repeat the exact same one we were handed down. We want to do it a little bit different and that's fine. And I think we're much more apt to do that if we have open conversations with our parents where we say, here's, you know, what do you think your parents did? Well, you ask your parents that question and Mm -hmm. what do you think you did? Well, What would you want to have done different? Here's what I think you did well. Here's what I want to do different. I wonder what my kids are going to say I did well. I wonder what they're going to want to do different. This is all part of the story and transformation of our lives is that none of us do it exactly perfectly. And our kids job is to take it and do it better, Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, I think those conversations are really important to have in, but that you have them with grace 
and with compassion and with love and with an understanding that we all are doing the best we can. You know, the reality is, you know, I've been asking groups of people since I've been teaching this class. So for, you know, 25 years, you know, raise your hand if you grew up in a home that was open about sexuality and you felt safe and you learned about it in little small pieces all along the way. And I'll get, you know, maybe 5%, 8% of the people will have grown up in a family similar to mine. Mm-hmm. But about 90% of people grow up in a home that is silent or silent and shaming. That is what is typical. That is what is common in our, in the United States. Wow. And that has yeah. been common for generations. So we have just not done it well. And so most of us have a long way to go. And so the more we can just kind of look at that and go, okay, so here's what went well, here's what didn't. How can I heal my own shame? Because if I can heal my own shame, I'm much less likely to be reactive to my children or the children in my life. And then I have a chance to write a new legacy. And the cool thing about sexuality is as we heal our shame, we really can write a new legacy in one generation. We really can change it in one generation. So it's a really cool thing. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's you don't want to spread onto your kids the the same things that you had to deal with. So Mm -hmm. So, and tell me more about your community, Thank God for Sex. How can people get involved in that? (laughs) Yeah, that was a, you know, middle of the night idea. Uh Uh-huh. I had so many students that were, you know, coming and talking to me about their life and whatnot. And what I realized in listening to their stories was that they weren't talking to other people because they were so afraid of being judged. Mm -hmm. Yeah especially the Christian ones. And yet their stories were so common, you know, and I just kept feeling so bad because I was saying, Oh, sweetheart, this is so normal. You know, your story (laughs) is so common, you know, but they just felt so awful about it. And so, um, so I started to think that, gosh, if we could get more of their stories out there that where they could be heard then people could find out that they weren't alone, you know, but since they weren't talking to each other, I didn't know how to do that. So I got thinking one night in the middle of the night that, um, how the, it gets better project is the one that Dan Savage Mm -hmm. and Terry Miller, his partner, Terry Miller started, I don't think 2010 for the LGBTQ community where people were putting up videos saying, here's what it was like when I was in high school. It was horrible. It was terrible but I survived it and it gets better. And then they put these up because there were so many adolescent gay kids that were committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, there were not within no time, there were thousands of videos up and those were incredibly encouraging to kids. And I thought, what if we launched a website and I got some of these 20 somethings who were further along in their journey and they were beginning to heal and they were getting to a place where they were starting to thank God for sex. Uh-huh. If, if they were willing to tell some of their story. And so we just started shooting videos in my living room and putting them up on a website. And, and then a couple of them 
kind of, it just was a volunteer thing. You know, they got an idea and they're like, well, what if we had some community conversations where we just didn't, we have a pub nearby that has a side room that's always empty on Sundays. If we just started, you know, getting people together and having a panel on sexual shame or a panel on adult sex ed or a panel on being single or a panel on LGBTQ or whatever. So we just started doing those and we started recording them and we put those on the website. And then we had a resource page and we just started asking people what they wanted and building this website around it. And it was a ton of fun. We had a great time. And yeah, it just kind of evolved and grew very organically. And the website, the analytics show that it's global. Oh, wow. People go to it from all over the world. And it's just been a very, very fun, wonderful little project that has been as much fun to do as, as anything and really fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some sense to, you know, kind of break the surface there where people are afraid to talk about it. But once someone else talks about it, then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, like I have that too. Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah. And there's just there's so many different stories. We've got, you know, gay and straight and people that had babies and people that got married as virgins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we have the whole gamut on there, you know, and yeah. it's just wonderful. I just love it. So we probably need to record some more but it's been really fun it's been really really fun yeah 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 well you've been you've been so busy i'm sure (laughs) yeah but it's been really fun yeah and it was really fun to get the book done you know that people had been asking for a book you know that said how did the church become sex negative Mm -hmm. and and I could show, well, yeah, here's how it became sex negative, but it wasn't meant to be sex negative. And here's the proof that it wasn't meant to be sex negative, you know, and I could show a little bit about how living in a consumer based culture affects us that it's not neutral living where we do, you know, and then to be able to say, here's a model for healing, you can apply this in your life, this will help you. And here's some touch and non touch practices that you can do in your life that will help you integrate spirituality and sexuality, integrate your faith in your life. Cause most people don't know how to do that. Nobody's ever taught them how to do that. And if you're working with a therapist and they don't understand your faith, they don't understand why you still have your faith when your faith has hurt you, but your faith is still important to you. You can hand them this book and this will explain it to them, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was really fun to get this done because there wasn't anything out there like this. Um, that could both help the person who had experienced this, but also help the providers that were out there working with, you know, people who were from conservative Christian background or from a religious background. Because when you are a therapist, you don't get training really in sexuality and you don't get training in religion or spirituality. And so a lot of people were that intersection has affected their life and they go see practitioners, whether it's medicine or psychotherapy, they often can't get the help that they need. So this book was really written in lots of ways to help for that particular issue too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has it been controversial at all or, or not really? Well, you know, it hasn't been as much as I've been expecting. I keep expecting it and maybe it's right around the corner, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> but it hasn't been yet. So it either came out right when it was supposed to uh-huh. or um, the backlash is yet to occur. 
So, um, yeah, yeah, it's so far been really, really well received. I, I do think that there was a lot of people waiting, you know, waiting for this book or this kind of book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And it's really for those people that I wrote it. And I don't, you know, I think for the people that might be bothered by it, I really understand their fear and they have a different relationship with God. Their God is a little bit more fearful and judgmental and that's okay. I don't need to be convincing anybody of anything. This is really here to help people that have experienced sexual shame and want a different relationship with their bodies and sexuality and with their partner and really want to be in relationship with a loving, forgiving, grace-filled God. And this will help them do that. So, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's Yeah, it's more about helping them versus... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's so great. Tina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. And thank you everyone for joining us for True Love No Shame. Uh, Be sure to check out Tina's book and blog at tinashermersellers.com. And we'll be back soon with more. Thanks so much. I enjoyed being with you. 